Good morning. How's everybody today? There we go. Good? Nice to be inside? Because it's going to be really hot outside, right? And uh, I was just thinking, as uh, John was speaking earlier, uh, how many people it takes to make a church run well? You know, I mean, like, as we're here this morning, we have people in the nursery. We've got David up there. Who else we got up there? How are you doing, Roland? So, anyhow, I mean, like, you ever say thank you to these people? The men who serve communion, whatever. It's important to do that. One of the best books I ever read was a little book entitled The Greatest Management Principle. I thought it was about business, but as it turned out, it was about... Um, taking time to stop and appreciate people for who they are. Understand them. Say thank you. It's an important thing to do that. Uh, it's part of what makes the body of Christ function. And so just think about it today. Um, if there's somebody you could say thank you to, somebody who greets, somebody who teaches your kids in Sunday school or whatever, it would be a really, really great thing to do. I'm pleased to be able to speak this morning. Uh, Thursday, I leave for Poland. I'm going to be at a family camp with a, a couple hundred people for a few weeks, and we're going to be, well, a week and a half. And we're going to be studying the Gospel of John, so guess where I'm going to preach from this morning? That'd be real easy, right? So I've been spending a lot of time in the Gospel of John, and I want to share uh, some of what I've learned with you, some of what I've been reminded. And um I love the Gospel of John. I mean, the Gospel of John has just such a clear purpose. You know, you don't go to the Gospel of John and ask yourself, what's he trying to say? Because he tells you that. He says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, if you spend any time reading the New Testament, you recognize that there's a significant difference between what Matthew says, what Mark says, and what Luke says, these three Gospels which kind of give us one view of Christ, and what the Gospel of John says. In fact, 90% of the Gospel of John is new, unique material. Stuff you haven't heard of before, and the story I'm going to talk about today will be one of those unique pieces of material. But before I get there... Let's think about Matthew, Mark, and Luke just for a minute, because when you read those Gospels, what you see is Jesus is the great storyteller. He is an incredible storyteller, right? He tells the story of the lost son. He tells the story of the lost sheep. He tells the story of the lost coin. He tells you the story of the sower. He tells you the story of the good Samaritan. He tells you story after story after story. And they're incredible stories. He's a master storyteller. When you come to the Gospel of John, all of that changes. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is in the story. And John is the storyteller. And he's a master storyteller, too, because as you begin thinking your way through the Gospel of John, he tells you the story, for example, about how Jesus first meets John the Baptist. And then he tells you a story about a wedding in Cana of Galilee and how Jesus turns water into wine. And then he tells you a story about how Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. And then he tells you a story about Jesus talking with Nicodemus. And then he tells you a story about Jesus with John the Baptist again. And then he tells you a story about Jesus with the Samaritan woman whom he meets 
at the well. And then he tells you a story about a noble man. I mean, it's story after story after story. Today, I want to take you to one particular story in John's Gospel. In one sense, it's the same as all of the stories in John's Gospel. And that one sense is this. What John likes to do is point out something that Jesus does. For example, a miracle. And then that miracle creates a discussion. And that discussion should point you to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you have life through his name. So this story does that. But this story, the story of the lame man, is very, very special story. And it's a special story because everything in John's gospel changes with this story. Let me explain what I mean. When you read John chapters 1 through 4, Jesus is moving about from Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and everywhere Jesus goes... He is greatly appreciated. Oh, there's some dissent, but for the most part, everybody likes him. You find him dialoguing with, for example, Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, we know you're a teacher, come from God. And then they get into this interesting discussion. And if you know the Gospel of John, you know that in the long run, Nicodemus becomes a close follower of Christ. Then, you, of course, you have a dialogue with John the Baptist, which is incredible dialogue about who Christ really is. And then, of course, you have the story of the woman at the well. When Messiah comes, either speak to you, am the Messiah. It's just one incredible story after another. Wherever Jesus is, people accept him until chapter 5. In chapter 5, everything changes. As I said, there had been a little dissent before, but in chapter 5, because of this story, Jesus' life is for the rest of his ministry going to be under threat. There will be plots to kill him, and ultimately those plots are going to be realized. And this story is an interesting story for a few other reasons as well. And it's kind of because... It's a multi-layered story. When I say it's a multi-layered story, what I mean is actually there's three stories in this story. And they get progressively deeper. So let me tell you the first story. Well, why don't I read the story for you? That would be better. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I'm reading from John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up from Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in the Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. 
At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and the Lord, the, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up you know, and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted them, him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work, and to this very day, I, too, am working, and for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I'll stop there. Think of this first story. It just gives us the facts of the situation. Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast of the Passovers. John doesn't tell you what feast it is, but... If you think about it a little, there were three feasts for which the men of Israel were to go to Jerusalem. The Feast of of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover. Most Bible scholars think this probably was a Passover, and then that makes four Passovers in the Gospel of John, and it gives us a reason for thinking that Jesus' ministry lasts for at least three years plus a little. It's not that important. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Near the Sheep Gate, there's a pool that's called Bethesda. This pool is literally known as the House of Mercy or the House of Grace. And as you can imagine at this pool, because on occasion when the waters are stirred, people who get into the water get healed. And so we're told that there are five porches surrounding this pool, and those five porches are filled with people, the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, whatever, who are waiting for their opportunity to get into the water to be healed. Now, if you have a new version of the Bible, you'll find that something is omitted. There's what I'm referring to as the fable in the text or the myth in the text, and the myth is this. I mean, it says in the old King James Version, whatever, that at a certain time an angel came and stirred the waters, but there were certain textual issues with regard to that. And so some people wanted that removed from the text. You won't find it in the ASV, and you won't find it in the uh, in the NIV. So in the text I read this morning, you didn't find this. But here, here's the deal. You can get all upset about that or whatever. The fact of the matter is, something stirred the waters. Angel or no angel, the waters were stirred. And when those waters were stirred, some people got healed. And because some people were getting healed, large crowds of people were coming to this pool because they too wanted some of the action. I don't know how many of you have been to Mount Royal and uh, in Montreal. 
But if you go up to the top of the mountain, to the cathedral or whatever's there, not a cathedral, but a shrine that's there, there's all sorts of crutches and who knows whatever else hanging on the walls. You've been there? People got healed. They crawled all the way up those steps and got healed. So it's this isn't something new. People go to places like Lourdes or somewhere because they've heard that in these places something spectacular takes place. Lots of people are there. And we're told now that there is a lame man there and that this lame man is has been lame for 38 years. How long he's been at the pool, we don't really know. Could have been there a long time. He's been there long enough to begin getting a bit discouraged. He has nobody to help him to get into the water. And as a result, while he wants to get healed, he in fact can't get healed because he's too late every time. Jesus meets the man. And you know the question. I find it a very interesting question. Do you want to get healed? Now, you have to understand at this point that this man has no idea who is talking to him. No idea. It says later in the text, he doesn't know who it is. He doesn't know it's Jesus who is there. Do you want to get healed? We know, because we know Jesus, that the one person in the world who can help him is right there next to him. He doesn't know that. And it's important for you to keep that in your mind. Do you want to get healed? Seems like a silly question because he's there and he's been there for a long time. Clearly, he wants to get healed, but nothing has happened. I'm sure if I were that man, I would have had two fixed thoughts in my mind. One, I'd be watching that pool like a hawk, right? As soon as the first bubble came up out of water, I'd be figuring out, how am I going to get there? And the second thing is, I'd have a plan as to how to get there, right? Those would be two. I'd be preoccupied with that. I took my eyes off that and miss another opportunity. You just never knew when your opportunity was going to come to pass. He's focused on that. He's not really focused on who's speaking to him. And then this incredible thing happens. And the incredible thing that happens is Jesus says, you know, did you notice Jesus didn't argue with him? He doesn't say, well, you know, I'm here, you know, I could help you into the pool, something like that. He just simply says, rise, take up your mat, and walk. That make any sense to you? I mean, the guy's been lame for 38 years. Somebody comes and says, get up. What are you going to do? That's the absurdity of this situation. And yet, that's exactly what he does. Jesus says, rise, pick up your mat, walk. And he does it. And you have to ask yourself a question. What is it about when Jesus speaks? What is there about this Jesus who speaks? And a man who doesn't even know him, a man who has every reason in the world to think that he can't obey him, does. 
The voice of Jesus is an incredible thing. And we're not left in John's gospel to doubt about this because if you go over to John chapter 7, you'll remember the religious leaders of Israel are getting really frustrated with Jesus. And they decide to send the temple police out and they are going to arrest Jesus and bring him back to the Sanhedrin. If you know the story, they go and they, they're ready to arrest Jesus, but they begin listening to him and then they come back to the Sanhedrin without Jesus. And those religious leaders say, what is going on here? We sent you to arrest him. Why isn't he here with you? And what do they say? Nobody ever spoke like this man. Nobody ever spoke like this man. If you go over to the 18th chapter, it's the night of the betrayal by Judas. Judas is accompanied by some temple police as well. Temple soldiers, if that's what you want to call them. And you remember the story. Judas brazenly walks up to Jesus and gives him the kiss, stands there. I don't know if he was smirking, smiling, or what he was doing at that point in time. Jesus says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. And we're told that while Judas stands, the temple guard falls down. Something about the voice of Jesus. Come back to this man. Something inside the human being that when the Creator speaks, the created individual hears that when God speaks into your heart, Jesus says it this way, my sheep, my sheep, hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. See, that's what's special about the voice of Jesus, that somehow in, in all of the noise of the world in which you and I live, when Jesus speaks, you can hear him. And you know it's him. Ever had that experience? It doesn't necessarily happen often. Some people have it in a dream. Some people have it, they're in their devotion time, and it's all of a sudden like, boom, God speaks to you and say, that was God speaking. How do you know that? You never heard him before. Right? We say, that's Jesus speaking, and you never heard Jesus speak before, but you know full well, this is the Master. And he's speaking to you. That's what happens to this man. All of a sudden, this creature hears the voice of his creator saying, rise, take up your mat and walk. And he does that. It's an incredible story. Absolutely incredible story. But that's the first story and just the first story. So we're going to get to what I'm going to call the story behind the story. 
Because now we start another story, and the second story starts with a, a simple little sentence. And it was the Sabbath day. That's such a simple little statement. You have to wonder why on earth John would use that. But then you, when you're reading John's gospel, you really need to be thinking in a, in a Jewish mindset because the gospel of John is an extremely Jewish document. The Jews took the Sabbath very seriously. At least some of them did. The religious leaders did for sure. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? In fact, it's the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Let me read it to you from Deuteronomy. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of the animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. As we come back to the story, this man is on his way to the temple. Wouldn't you be? I don't know how many times in ministry I've visited people in the hospital and prayed, oh, Lou, would you pray for my healing? And if I ever get healed, I'll never miss church again. They make it a few times, right? But they don't always make it for a long time. He's on his way to the temple. He understands that, that God has brought about a, a healing in his life. And I think he's going to the temple to give God thanks. And I don't know about you, but if I hadn't walked in 38 years, I'd be wanting to walk a lot. I just want to make sure this is real. I'm not dreaming, right? This is, this is a real deal. I'm out here walking. Praising God. Excited about the fact that your whole life has changed in one moment. And what happens to him? He runs into some religious people who are going to, what should we say, rain on his parade. There's a lot of them out there. What are you doing walking on a Sabbath day? A guy just healed me. Really? Well, you shouldn't walk on a Sabbath day anyhow. At least you can only walk so far. And furthermore, you're carrying your mat. And that's a big no-no. You can't carry any, no work on a Sabbath day. That's the position, right? And all of a sudden, this man who's experiencing this, this incredible joy is, is getting the life, the spiritual life, sucked right out of him. The question is, what's Jesus' view on the Sabbath? I don't know about you, I was raised in a home where the Sabbath was a big deal. I don't care what on earth, like, you could be the all-star of the all-stars of the all-star, and if the all-star game was on a Sunday, you weren't playing. 
That was it. Now you can say, oh, that was just fundamental nonsense and whatever. Maybe pendulum swung a little in the other direction, someplace it needs to come back uh, to the middle, right? Because the Sabbath day in Jesus' mind really wasn't a play day. We've kind of turned it into a play day, but it, it wasn't really a play day as far as Jesus was concerned. It was something quite different than that. It was something that you would think about as Jesus might think about it, because remember back in the book of Genesis when it speaks about the seventh day, it's on the seventh day that God rests from his labor. In those six days of creation, what we know is that God created an incredibly perfect place. And he took Adam and Eve, and I like the way the text was, he put them in that garden. It was to remember something about the fact that God had made an incredible place for you, an incredible place for me, an incredible place for Adam, an incredible place for Eve, a place where there was no work, where there was no labor, where there was no worry, where there was no anxiety, where there was no sickness, where there was no pain, where there was no anything that disrupts our society today. No injustice. None of it there. And not just that. It would be a reminder to the Jewish people of the fact that all during their journey through the wilderness, on the seventh day, they couldn't pick up any manna. Why? Because God would provide for them. The seventh was a reminder not just of God's perfection, but of of God's provision. And then, of course, on the seventh year, I mean, trusting God for a day, most of us can get done, right? But for a whole year. And that seventh year, that Sabbath year, where you trusted God in the sixth year to provide you with enough for the seventh year and to wait till you got into the eighth year and you could gather some stuff again. And then, of course, you get to the 49th year and you come to the 50th year to the year of Jubilee. And so you're minus food on 49, except God provides. And you minus food on 50, except God provides. And you got to get into year 51. It's a reminder of how God provides for the human individuals. This is the kind of thing that's going on in Jesus' mind. And it's not just that. It's about rest. That's why the author of Hebrews says something like this to us. Harden not your hearts as in the days of provocation. Enter into that rest. What we see Jesus doing is helping people enter into that rest. It's not without cause that John points us to two incredible miracles in his gospel, both of which happen on Sabbath days to show us that God cares about the lame and he wants to make them whole. God cares about the blind and he wants to make them see. And I want you to know today, God cares about you and he wants you to be whole too. That's what the Sabbath is about. It's about reminding ourselves of the fact that God wants us to live under his grace and his goodness. 
And if we're going to do something with the Sabbath, maybe we ought to think about that. As churchgoers, as believers, how do we operate on the Sabbath the way Jesus did? I think James gives us a pretty decent description to feed the fatherless and the widows, visit the sick in their affliction. And that's just the beginning. It's about helping people recover from broken lives, bringing Sabbath rest to them. It's about meeting with people who are lonely and sad because nobody even remembers who they are. Sabbath rest, Sabbath rest. But see, that's only the second story in the text. And it's part of the story that we can enter into because we as a church and we as people can create Sabbath rest for people by getting involved in their lives and healing the part of their lives that we can heal, helping, communicating, whatever. Marguerite was just reading in the Atlantic magazine the other day, one of the, one of the difficulties with children in our society, do you know what it is? Parents are so glued to their cell phones that their kids don't know that they are first importance. The cell phone rings, and mom or dad goes to the cell phone. You know what they found out? Is that kids who were raised in homes where that doesn't happen, where mom gives the kid her full attention, cognitively they're way ahead. But cell phone interrupted stuff, they fall behind. It's about people. It's about involvement. But there's a story behind the story behind the story, the third story that we have to get to. And the third story begins, in a sense, in the same way the second story does. It's this. Basically, the religious leaders are saying to Jesus, wait a second, whose idea of the Sabbath gets to rule the day? Who do you think you are I mean, how could you possibly be a man of God? Did you ever read Numbers 15? Because there was a guy picking up firewood on the Sabbath day, and they killed him. They stoned him to death. You can die for breaking the Sabbath. How could you possibly be a good man and tell somebody to carry a bed on the Sabbath or to walk on the Sabbath or whatever? And Jesus says this, My Father works, and I work too. My Father is always at work, and I am too. And now they're really mad. Because Jesus, you know, a true Jewish person doesn't even try to spell the name God unless they make a mistake. They abbreviate it. And Jesus is calling God Father. Hey, Dad. My dad, you know what he's doing? And they're like, you're kidding me. He's on a first name basis with God. And now in their mind... He's guilty not just of breaking the Sabbath, but he's guilty of blasphemy. He claimed to be God. 
Who's right? Well, you know who's right. He is God. He came from heaven. He has seen what the Father does. He has apprenticed under the Father. He comes to this world to do what the Father does. What's the Father doing? The Father is at work always trying to redeem His lost creation. And Christ is here continuing the cause on earth. God with men seeking to do that. That's what it's all about. And now as you come to this, this story, Jesus is not merely God, but he's, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath day. He can heal a blind man. He can heal a lame man. He can pull an ox out of a ditch or whatever. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about rescuing life, not destroying it. And as we come to this story, all of a sudden John does something that I really like in biblical text. He, he uses a phrase and he says this, the day is coming and now is. He says this here, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. I'm reading verse 24. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. There is coming a day and it is now when those who are dead, spiritually dead in this situation, not physically dead, though Christ can handle that too, when they hear his voice, they have life. But there's a final chapter to the three stories. And the final chapter is, there is coming a day. And that day is still future. This day is present. I want to tell you today that Jesus can heal you today. What I mean by heal is he can fix the problems in your life. Problems of guilt, problems of anxiety, problems of doubt, problems of fear, problems of what... He can fix those right now. There's coming a day, and now is that day, when you can move from death to life. But there's coming another day. If you read down to verse 28, Do not be amazed at this, for time is coming when all who are in their graves... You see... The Father has placed in the hands of Jesus two things, life and judgment. And he can give life to anyone whenever he wants. Do you remember the discussion with Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus? What's the question? Don't worry. Don't worry, Martha. Your brother will rise. Oh, I know he'll rise at the last day. Jesus says, forget the last day. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. The one who believes in me, even though he's dead, yet will he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe it? God can give life. Christ can give life wherever and whenever he wants. Well, that's just for religious people. Not really. Because there's coming another day. 
And God, Christ, will speak again. And everyone who's in their grave will come forth, and they will come forth, and they will face judgment, because just as life has been placed in the hands of the Son, judgment has as well. And those who come forth who have done good will have eternal life, and those who come forth and have done evil will have condemnation. That's what the text says. You might ask yourself the question, well, how do I get out of condemnation and into life? Jesus gives the answer here. He says, I tell you the truth, verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Do good. But I'm afraid to say that word because doing good means everybody trying to do good things. Okay? Doing good things is not the answer. The answer in the Gospel of John is always this. But to as many as received him, to as many as believe on his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. If you ask Jesus in John 6, how do we do the works of God? The answer is the same. Believe on him whom God sent. The good work is belief. The rest of the work, of course, Christ is taken care of, but but that's another message. Here's the thing. You want to hear his voice? You want to follow him? You want to believe in the one who sent him? And when you do that, you pass from death to life. And the Sabbath begins, in a sense, in your life. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, working too hard, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You will find rest to your soul. That's what it's all about. This morning, John was speaking about the rescue out of that cave. And I agree. So what, so incredible when you look at those graphics and you see what had to happen for those young men to get out of that cave. It was incredible. And what John said about Jesus is true. He comes with the scuba tank. You're deep in the recesses. He brings you out. You make a choice today. The scuba guy makes his way all the way into the cave. He goes through those three depressions, comes out the other end, says, do you want, do you want to go out of the cave? And you say, no. You choose death. Or you can say yes 
get me out of this mess and choose life. That's what Jesus is saying. You believe on my name. Trust in the one who sent me. Life changes. Rest begins. God's great. Let's pray. Maybe today as we're praying, you might be thinking, I've never done that in my life. You can do it. Christ is there today saying to you, God so loved the world. He sent me. He sent me to rescue you. Just let me take you by the hand and pull you out of the mess you're in. And I'll change your life. Maybe you can just simply pray their prayer. You know what? Jesus, I'm in a mess. I need your help. Take me by the hand. Get me out of the cave. Teach me about yourself. Guide the rest of my life. Forgive my sin. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray there for any here who don't know you. They might come to know you. They might realize that Jesus came on a seek and rescue mission. And that he's come to give us life and life more abundantly. We pray now that as we think about these things, you would help us to be people who bring this rest to other people's lives. Lord, there's so many people in our world who are just frustrated at the end of their rope. And they need a believer to come alongside them and share the good news that Jesus is a rescuer. We give you thanks for him and the changes that he's made in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.